You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. We're talking about Lafayette today, and in particular, one building, the Cajun Dome, but also, in a, more broadly, also the, the Cajun Dome is located on the ULL campus. This is a, an anniversary year for uh, ULL. And actually, ULL is located in Lafayette, and it's an anniversary year for Lafayette also. So there, there is uh, anniversaries coming in all over the place. With me, there is a, a documentary that has come out. It's been shown on LPB. And it can be streamed on LPB. Uh, uh, and it's about the Cajun Dome. And it's called the Cajun Dome City. So talk a little bit about the history of that building. And in particular, about what happened the year of Katrina and the role that it played during Katrina and, and uh, as a shelter and how it ranked as a shelter. And so it's a really fascinating story. So with me today are Chris Elaine and his son, Christopher Elaine, who were like the, the co-directors, is that a fair thing to say? Um, yes, um, of this uh, documentary. And Trent Angers, who's a well-known figure around Lafayette, uh, has a publishing company, has written many books. And Trent, one day I want to talk to you a lot more about your books also. Uh, and his dad was the founder, those of you who know uh, KDN Profile Magazine, his dad was the founder of that. In the, in the spirit of full disclosure, several years ago, uh, Trin sold the magazine to our company, Renaissance Publishing, and we've been publishing it for the uh, the last several years. By the way, ranked as number one regional magazine in the country for magazines under 40,000 uh, 40, plus. So anyway, so there's a lot to say about a, a lot of things. But anyway, thank you all very much. Let's begin, though. It seems like the real dramatic story here is what happened after Katrina, there was this huge evacuation out of New Orleans and especially out of Southeast Louisiana. A lot of people headed west, got on I-10, logged I-10, wound up in, in, in the Lafayette area. Chris, uh, you want to start off and, and, and Christopher, jump in whenever you want to. Tell us the story about what happened in Lafayette and the, uh, and the Cajun Dome. Well, uh, of course, following Katrina, there was chaos. And there were an enormous number, and I say following Katrina, technically following a few following the flooding, which began what uh, two days following the storm. I mean, the day after the two days, something of that sort. But the flooding then began uh, uh, displacing more and more and more people, and the evacuees were in the in the tens of thousands, and a lot of shelters in the state were full and turning away uh, turning away evacuees. And what one of the things that made the Cajun Dome unique is that the director of the Cajun Dome, Greg Davis, who is featured in the documentary, is uh, uh, created a policy that no one would be turned away. And so the influx was enormous and the buses just came and came and came and the Cajun Dome uh, 
became filled with uh, Katrina evacuees. So Trinitha, a native of uh, Lafayette and have seen a lot, what did you think during all this period of time? I mean, was this frightening? Was it, were, you, were you worried that this is something that couldn't be handled? Were you, uh, what was the emotion during that time? Well, we were, we were worried for New Orleans. Uh, you know, Lafayette is almost always okay when hurricanes come. I mean, they hit to the left of us, they hit to the right of us. We're worried about New Orleans, but the, uh, the Cajun Dome story, the thing that struck me that I will never forget was when Greg Davis paints the picture of the night of the 17 buses. There were 17 busloads of people from New Orleans, including some who were on the verge of dying. Greg Davis gets a call from the state police and says, look, we have 17 buses. Nobody wants them. Uh, no, nobody wants to take them. Uh, can you take them? And of course we took them. And Greg Davis's policy, and I will remember this all my life, he said, our policy, as Chris just said, we will turn no one away. Um, that still moves me when I think about it because these people, your people from New Orleans, they were desperate, they were sick. The first three buses were filled with people who may have had a, a, a few days to live because they were off of their dialysis. Uh, off of all of their medications. They had wounds that were, that were becoming infected. And uh, Dr. Paul Azar said, uh, he was the, the medical director. Uh, he uh, roused people from their beds at two o'clock in the morning, medical people, to receive these buses. And Dr. Azar um, set up a triage arrangement uh, and they triaged the people and uh, Every last life was saved. Uh, it was it was amazing. Um, some were put on ambulances, Acadian ambulance, immediately and sent to this hospital or that. Others were put into another group or another group. But we took everybody in. We fed them and we we, we took care of them. We ha we gave medical services. So um, the the night of the seventeen buses uh, that would make a good title for a book. But that was a, a, a striking. Uh, memorable event. I wasn't there. Um, I'll just hear the, the story from Dr. Azar who triaged, who triaged these people. And, and Dr. Azar is, um, uh, he had experience as a Desert Storm era brigade sergeant. And um, he's the one who established a triage station at the, at the uh, Cajun Dome. He Fred, also had one going at if, the if I can speak to uh, Dr. Azar's role a little bit, something that it needs to be said, Dr. Azor was serving in a voluntary capacity on the Cajun Dome Commission, the governing commission that oversaw the Cajun Dome's operation. And as a result of that, Greg Davis called Dr. Azor because he was he was involved. He was part of the, the, the governance committee. And Dr. Azor jumped in at that point. And as Trent said, he had that uh, combat experience, but he... Uh, I think he took it as a personal mission to care for these people as a as a longstanding physician and and as a as a governing member of the Cajun Dome Commission. He I think it became his personal mission. And Trent, you can correct me. I'm not certain if this, but I believe he served every single day from the day that he got that the two in the morning when he got that phone call from Greg Davis until 62 days later. He was involved day and night 
in the operation of the medical operation at the Cajun Dome, which was a huge medical operation. It was not band-aids. There were people on dialysis. There were people who hadn't had their um, their medicine for uh, diabetes in multiple days. There were a number of critical patients. And so the, the health care uh, that was given at the Cajun Dome was remarkable and, and I think largely unprecedented. So that's another thing that is that made the mega shelter that was so unique, again, so unique. It the Red Cross doesn't typically do anything other than very, very basic band-aids and aspirin and such. And we had highly trained physicians providing critical care in the Cajun Dome to, to hundreds and, and thousands of people. Christopher, I know working on this as a director, you've probably seen a lot of footage of what went on that day. Any impressions that just stand out in your mind? Uh, from what you've worked with? Uh, I think, honestly, I think the biggest thing that stands out is the sheer quantity of people that showed up and had to show up for the Cajun Dome to operate on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, it it wasn't a matter of the Cajun Dome went out and hired staff to take care of these people. They needed hundreds and hundreds of people in addition to their existing staff, just to make things work. And incredibly, they had that support. It was volunteers. It was people showing up and making donations. It was something that you couldn't expect, but happened nonetheless. There were 500 people a day volunteering to, to uh, work in the cage dump. 500 people a day from our direct area. Do you have any idea at capacity how many people were being taken care of in, in, in the building? Very specifically, uh, the, the cumulative total was 18,500. However, at the peak, there were 7,000 people in that building. Um, 7,000 people was at the peak and it, the accumulation was 18,500. And, and I'll add one other detail that really kind of hammers home just how many people that is. The Cajun Dome is built to seat 12,000 people at an event. And so if you think about how much space a person takes up when they're sitting at an event and how much space they take up when they are carrying everything that wasn't destroyed that they own, where they're trying to set up a cot where they can sleep, it's a lot more space. It takes up a, a person takes up a lot more space in that in that role. And so for a building that is set up to seat 12,000 to have 7,000 people in it at any given time, it's uh, it's very, very crowded. The, the operations director of the Cajun Dome said that you typically go you plan for three to five square feet for a person when they're attending an event. That's the sort of ratio you use. If somebody's sleeping, in a space, you need close to 100 square feet. So there were people in the hallways, in, in, in every, in corridors, they were just, there were people everywhere. So uh, it was, it was, it was, it was hard on the building. It was hard on the facilities. There were not facilities. There weren't showers and, and bathrooms. And, you know, all of that was absolutely not up to handling 
uh, a, a thousand people living there, much less, uh, you know, seven or eight thousand. And 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 I believe I, uh, uh, Trent said seven thousand. I thought I recalled one one person saying that it was up to eight thousand at one point. But but either way, can you imagine there are there are numerous small towns throughout Louisiana who have the entire towns have much smaller populations than seven thousand. Now the night. I guess of when the flooding began in New Orleans, uh, the night Katrina hit was with August 29th um, of 2005. Did they start arriving that night or the next day? It was a couple of days later. That's right. Because the flooding didn't happen immediately. Katrina came through and it kind of looked like everything was going to be all right. And then the levee, levees uh, breaches breached began. And people started realizing they had to get out of New Orleans. Some of them could get out on their own. Some of them couldn't, had to be rescued. But it took a couple of days for the trickle of people to become a flood. Um, and so it, it was a few days after Katrina before the first evacuees arrived at the Cajun Dome. I, I, I think maybe two days, huh, Trent? Uh, my, my, my recollection, and this is not something covered in the documentary, but that it was uh, what maybe... Uh, 24 hours after this, it, it depends on when you say the storm was over, of course, but it was it was roughly the day after the storm that the waters began rising. And uh, I don't know exactly, you know, within probably 12 hours, evacuees were being brought out of the city. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it was a uh, couple of days. Now, in New Orleans, uh... The Superdome was a big evacuation center, and there are just horror stories since then of what happened. As big as the Superdome is, about the condition of the building, uh, how it was left. Did the same thing happen here uh, in the Cajun Dome? To, to a certain extent, there was damage, but most of the damage was from overuse. Um, the, the fact that the Cajun Dome was able to maintain uh, crews that were going and cleaning, the Cajun Dome actually hired a number of the evacuees that that were residents at the time and put them on the staff to to go through and keep things clean but if you think about it the these facilities are built to be used two to three times a week for an hour at a time if you put way more people than it was built to uh to have to to have and you put them in continuous use the the facilities definitely um, were damaged just from overuse. And how long were there people there? Fifty eight days officially. Uh, uh, Paul Lazor said that he was there sixty two days. So uh, uh, I guess he was still in the process of cleaning up or or decompressing. I, I imagine if you uh, live there for two months, you don't just turn out the lights and walk out, you know? So, uh, uh, but two, two solid months, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, there were, there were physicians, there were always physicians present 24 hours a day. And, uh, and nurses, and as as Christopher said, or or Trent, uh, three to five hundred volunteers were required to keep the operation going, and that they always had that and more. 
the um, so ULL's other the campus activity, uh, the schooling, the basketball games, the football games. Did that happen during that period? Oh, ab absolutely not. There was there was <laughs> the Cajun Dome was available for nothing else. Uh, I mean, the Cajun Dome staff were, were were working around the clock. The facility, every inch of the facility was filled. Uh, in fact, it took until so sixty-two days beginning. What so, was it? so they they began the sheltering about 24 hours after Katrina, they were notified the that they'd be a shelter. And then they didn't actually reopen for activities until mid-January of the following year. And so it part of that was the sheltering operation. And then part of that was getting the stuff, the things necessary together and making the repairs necessary before the facility could be reopened. Yeah, they had to do major renovations after the use, but but it, it's I think it's important important to make the distinction. It was not from abuse; it was from overuse, and and you know the people, the Cajun Dome sheltering operation was very well managed. It was overseen. The people, uh, you know, it it didn't get out of hand. It wasn't um, it wasn't chaos. It was it was someone one of the uh, residents said. It was kind of chaos, but organized chaos. Who was, was there like one hero who really pulled this all together and supervised it and, and made it all happen? There were tons of heroes. And you well, know I would say that the I would say that the point man was Greg Davis. And uh, he made the to me a heroic statement. His, he set a policy down. He said, this operation will be driven not by fear of strangers, but by compassion for our fellow man coming from New Orleans. That was also a, a not only good policy, but uh, a humanitarian approach to things. Um, not only did he, uh, in very short order, decide that, no, we're not going to serve the, the MREs that, that are being supplied by the Red Cross. We're going to cook for our guests. Uh, th these guys are from New Orleans, and so on Monday, we're having red beans and rice and sausage. On Tuesday, we're having another traditional dish. On Friday, it'll be fried fish. Uh, for breakfast, it's, it's grits and sausage and eggs. Um, in other words, uh, we treated the people of New Orleans uh, as our flesh and blood. And because of that approach, because of that respect for people, we didn't have the big problems. I mean, I mean, with with 7,000 people in the building, there's, there's a lot of potential for problems, but because of the way that the people were treated and comforted, um, we didn't have the problems. And so to me, and it was Greg Davis, again, was the point man uh, who, who set that policy. It was like a, a moral uh, high ground and people followed that, they, they followed that. And the other, uh, point man, of course, is Dr. Azar. I mean, um, he says proudly that out of the 5,000 doctor visits and out of the 1,000 people that we saw, he, he says nobody died, uh, which is kind of amazing because there were probably 12 or 17 people uh, or thereabout who were truly on the verge of death when they arrived at the Cajun Dome. 
And yeah, they, they were anticipating, uh, Dr. Azor thought that it was possible that it could be a mass casualty event with multiple yes. deaths. Yeah. And, and so, and I, I agree with Trent. Uh, I think the idea, Paul, because of his affiliation with the Cajun Dome and his leadership in general, took uh, a more aggressive uh, approach to healthcare than had ever been taken in uh, a facility of this sort before. And they had to, there was opposition to the level of care that they wanted to provide. It was not, it was, it hadn't been done before. And, uh, and Paul said, listen, we're not letting people die. We're going to do what we have to do. And because of his connections in the community as a longstanding physician, he had the connections and spread the word. And he got uh, medical students and nursing students and physicians all from everywhere just poured in. And he, they would they they would just call him and, and, and get more medical staff there. And I think I don't know if Paul hadn't have been there and had that affiliation with Cajun Dove if they would have gotten into that that level of healthcare at all. W wouldn't you think that that's a possibility, Trent, that it could have gone a very different way? Oh, it, it could have fishtailed way out of control. And uh, I'm also recalling um, that that Dr. Azar had a, let's say a little confrontation with the uh, Red Cross people. They said, no, in a Red Cross facility, we do not treat people except for Band-Aids and aspirins. And Azar's position was, well, and they said, that's, that's our rules. He said, well, I'm going to break your rules because uh, the, the first order of business in the medical field is to save people's lives. And we're going to do what we got to do. And, you know, if that's not okay by you, we, you know, we'll take it up with, with your boss later. But um, we're not going to sit by on uh, idly uh, because of a bureaucratic uh, edict and let people die or let them suffer. And so uh, that was very heroic on his part. And uh, he ran a risk, uh, as did the Cajun Dome. The Cajun Dome, by the way, overspent their budget by approximately $5 million providing for the people of New Orleans. Uh, <clears throat> and and uh, some of the people on the Cajun Dome Commission were joking. They said, well, we might all go to jail for this. Uh, <laughs> the unauthorized spending of money that we don't have, but we're not going to let these people uh, starve. We're not going to let them live in fear. We're going to help them in every way we can. And that's what makes us proud to say that we're members of the Lafayette area community, that, that our leaders, that they stuck their neck out a little bit in a common sense, compassionate sort of a way. And um, we tip our hats to these folks. Yeah. And I'm glad you all did this documentary and doing this interview because that's a story that really never got out. Um, there were so many stories. Though. I mean, there were, there, were, there were a million Katrina stories. And so you can compete. But, but among those million, I think that's one that should have been near the top because it's quite a story. Uh, I, to underscore your point, I live less than a mile, probably a half mile from the Cajun Dome. And while I knew there was sheltering going on, I had no idea of the scope and uh, of what was going on until we did this documentary. Uh, I was involved in some other kinds of activities related to Katrina, but I didn't personally have anything to do with the Cajun Dome. My brother is a physician. He volunteered. And, and as I spoke to my friends about this documentary, 
one after the other said, yeah, I volunteered. A, a, a close friend of mine said that he was there something like 40 days. He volunteered every day for 40 days. So this is this is something that people in Lafayette know very well, that if you're not from Lafayette I mean, or the Lafayette area, you, you, other people, I don't, I don't know if other people in the state know this about Lafayette, but Lafayette has an extraordinarily large heart. And whenever there is a, a, some sort of a, a call for community service, Lafayette reaches out in ways that are, by most reports, unusual. The, the level of uh, care that, that they will show, the level of heart that they will show. And, uh, and what was done in this instance was something I think that shows just how how special people, those of us who've lived here all our lives, know that Lafayette, we believe that Lafayette is is a really special place in terms of the caring and the and the the compassion in the community. And I think this is such a, an example of what we've always thought of ourselves as as a as a as an incredibly giving community that was not going to let people down. And boy, when the word went out that 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 this was going on, the supplies showed up. The uh they they within a couple of few days, they had a a, a pharmacy with two to three hundred thousand dollars worth of medication. It took over a huge room. They had two full-time pharmacists working in the <laughs> it, you know, that's the kind of outreach, clothing, food, everything just just came, the community just opened their hearts. Now, I guess it was, what, a couple of weeks later when Hurricane Rita came by. So how are we all affected by that? Trent, you wanna take it? Well, yeah, I'll, I'll take a shot at that. Well, um, uh, the people were settling in, uh, in the Cajun Dome, they were settled and they were told, okay, Rita's coming and by law, we have to evacuate everybody from this area because it's south of Interstate 10. And so buses came and they brought people up to North Louisiana. And um, um, then shortly- but, but after Rita. So, so because Rita was coming, another hurricane was coming, you couldn't keep the same evacuees that you had to ship them out to make room for the, these. And so you shipped them to North yep. Louisiana. We had to evacuate yes, the evacuees. Okay, oh my God. Yeah, so the, you could imagine if the people were unsettled before, uh, they were unsettled again, and they could not imagine anybody treating them as well as they were being treated in Lafayette. And of course, that, that, that turned out to be true. But when they came back, there were also evacuees from Rita. So you had, you had two different, entirely different cultures in, under the same roof, uh, both of them uh, flooded out of their homes uh, by, by hurricanes. And by the way, Hurricane Rita, just to say a word about that, in a way was worse than Hurricane Katrina in terms of the wind damage. The town of, of Cameron, and I saw aerial pictures of this, was completely leveled. There was two things that were still standing, the, the water tower and the courthouse. That's it. The restaurants were gone. The houses were gone. The schools were gone. The cattle were gone. I mean, it was it was phenomenal. They just were literally wiped off the face of the earth. So um, 
and, yeah, and, so the, and Lake the, Charles took an enormous hit in Rita. And uh, Rita produced between 3,500 and 4,500 evacuees, just Rita into the Cajun Dome. So we had, when the people, I believe it was Shreveport that they were shipped to, and we did not do that. I think the state insisted that they be moved. But when they returned from Shreveport, the Shreveport folks, basically put them on buses immediately after the storm and sent them back. I don't even believe we were notified that they were coming. And we, we've we got 4,000 reader refugees in the dome when all of the Katrina, thousands of Katrina refugees began returning. So it was, it was chaos. I think it's got to be Shreveport's worst nightmare. We got four thousand refugees from New Orleans on uh, on the way. So, uh, and they don't have a big <laughs> university. Yeah, they don't have a big university like Lafayette does. I mean, they don't have a, uh, an equivalent uh, to the Cajun Dome. Well, they have a Coliseum, but uh, I'm not I don't sure. know. It's a, it's it's a bigger city, or at least it 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 used but, to be. But but it doesn't have a, it doesn't have a university other than uh, there's a there's a medical school. Uh, LSU Medical School is pretty big there. I don't know if there's another. The scope of the documentary really focuses on the Cajun Dome. So we, yeah. we know that at some point the state arranged for the evacuees that were living in the Cajun Dome when Rita came to go and be housed in Shreveport. And then following Rita, those uh, evacuees were put on buses and returned to the Cajun Dome. And, and one little comment, there are some photographs in the documentary of people loading on, loaded on the bus ready to head to Shreveport. And to see the look on the faces of the people who were being loaded on those buses to Shreveport, absolutely heartbreaking. You, you know, it was to say that they were sad just, just doesn't even, I mean, they were crushed. Can you imagine you've been there for at that point, what, four weeks, three weeks. three weeks. And and after three weeks, you've lost your home. There's no place to go back. And and you're loaded on a bus. And what little semblance of a life you that you've built in the Cajun Dome is now being and they're, they had they couldn't bring their stuff. What the clothing they had accumulated, et cetera. They had to leave that to go to Shreveport. So. Yeah, the, to say they were heartbroken is is an understatement. I'd like to add to um, uh, uh, there's another very unique thing that I think the people of New Orleans will appreciate uh, um, because this story will be new to them. Um, we were able to round up five actual evacuees who, from New Orleans who stayed in the Cajun Dome, and they were interviewed by Christopher Allen, who asked, who questioned them very skillfully and, and brought out really meaningful information and to hear the people of New Orleans describe their journey, describe the horror of it, describe uh, why exactly when they left New Orleans and how glad they were to be received with such respect and compassion. I mean, to hear these interviews will be uh, a, a, an in, a true insight uh, into Katrina stories that, that nobody in Louisiana has ever heard. and, and I thought that um, that Vidox did an excellent job uh, in the interviews and really drew these guys out, and uh, they really have something to say that'll be that'll be of interest to the people of New Orleans as well as statewide. Well, you know, the good news for evacuation 
by vehicle from New Orleans to Lafayette with I-10, of course. The bad news was Baton Rouge, where there'd been construction, like by the Blue Bonnet exit. And like before Katrina, like the day before Katrina, Blue Bonnet was like one lane. Right? So all of a sudden you had all of Southeast Louisiana going through that one lane by Blue Bonnet, uh, working its way to Lafayette. So that was, that was a problem. Anyway. Wow! <laughs> wow! No, uh, that yeah. that that's a that's a detail I hadn't heard. That well, you I, gotta know. Okay. Well, 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 well. If someone from New Orleans, let me thank you all for what you all did. Okay, and congratulations, and 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 please spread the word. Want to acknowledge that this year is the um, 125th anniversary of the university called ULL. Now it's had different names. It was originally what the Southwest Louisiana Institute and then the, the University of Southwest Louisiana. But in recent years, it's been University of Louisiana at Lafayette. Um, you know, when they first did that, a lot of people joked that University of Louisiana at Lafayette is like, ooh la la, okay? But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I think people have gotten to it and, and the university has um, certainly prospered and been an important part of Louisiana. What happened with the night within 1898 that the law was passed creating the university? Um, and it was Murphy Foster, who was the grandfather of the former governor, who signed that into law. Uh, it didn't, it took until 1900 to find a space to build a university. And finally there was land that was uh, uh, discovered in the Lafayette area, so they decided to build it there. The community, I'm not sure if it was the government or the people, put up like $8,000 to, to lure the university there. And there was also a tax that was passed to uh, uh, help lure the, uh, the university. But I think from the, from the very beginning, people realized this would be a big asset, not only to, uh, to Louisiana, but to, the, uh, but to the community. And also to the future, and also, as we see now, to rescue efforts into the future. So um, anyway. There were a group of community <laughs> leaders that organized to champion bringing UL to Lafayette. And it was, uh, uh, I believe there was quite the, uh, quite the arm wrestling match to, to make it happen. And, and, and I believe you're right, there was a land donation that became very uh, instrumental in Lafayette getting UL, but it was, uh, it was also a lot of uh, community leaders with foresight and vision and who worked very hard to, to make it happen. So it's been a real difference maker, of course, to the community of Lafayette, who, who, which was not a community much larger than many other communities in the state at the time. The, the university, the railroads, the intersection of I-10 and I-49 have all conspired to give Lafayette more of a central uh, place in, in, in South Louisiana. And, and I should say, Another documentary that we did in, in 1999 was about the history of Lafayette. And one of the reasons Lafayette became the hub city was because the in the Great Flood in 27, uh, people from uh, uh, Brobridge and St. Martinville, which were low-lying areas and, and, and other areas all around, came to Lafayette because it was slightly higher ground. And so that was a, a, an extraordinary sheltering event. Uh, my my uh, my father-in-law, who's deceased now, was a child and remembers living in tents 
on just inside of Lafayette, uh, uh, where the uh, where the seminary was, just as you come in from Brobridge, and uh, and so that was instrumental in making let's say a 40 mile region around Lafayette, people thought of Lafayette as a place you go when there is trouble. So all of these events sort of conspired to kind of lift Lafayette to a to a, a central position in 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 what we call Acadiana now. Reminds me of the uh, the Randy Newman song about Louisiana in 1927 and the great waters and what six feet of water in the streets of Evangeline. Yeah, 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 the streets of Vangeline, which is all the same area, yeah. Um, thank you all very much. This has been delightful. Um, we need to all talk again because there's been so many stories to tell. Real quickly, though, New Orleanians being what they are, always thinking about food. If anybody is going to Lafayette, what places would you all recommend to go eat? <laughs> well, I would say, I would say, you know, Prejean's is one, uh, Don's is another one. Um, and there are probably a 25 or 30 that are really outstanding restaurants, uh, a few of which we, we, we stole from New Orleans, including Drago's. They're, they're operating nicely here in Lafayette now. There's so, a Drago's uh, in Lafayette? Yeah, and, they, and they're, doing a, they're doing a good business in a location where a whole bunch of restaurants failed before. So they're obviously, uh, they're obviously running a good restaurant. And uh, so, uh, what's the Italian restaurant that, uh, uh, so, uh, there's, there's Marcello's, uh, what's, uh, oh, goodness. Imanelli's. E e e Imanelli's, um, yeah. Imanelli's is, is a local favorite for a lot of folks. And, and I know it's a part of a chain, but Zia's is very, very popular here in Lafayette. And the, uh, the local owner of the Zia's franchise, uh, runs a, runs a great operation and, and on a Saturday night, you're going to wait if you go to Zia's, that's for sure. It's a great place. Actually, there's a Zia's in New Orleans. I, I ate there yesterday. So, um, except uh, they serve baked trout. The baked trout is from the Snake River. You know where the Snake River is? It's in Yellowstone Park in Wyoming. So anyway, let me switch to one other thing. Uh, but it's a good place, yeah. The um, Mulats. Okay, that started with that started with Bro Bridge, um, and there's been a Mulats in New Orleans for a long time. And y'all may know this, but I was surprised. I was at an event there last year, the one in New Orleans, and the woman of the founder told me about he created this Cajun dancehall concept with a big dance space and then places all around to get the food and the beer. He says her dad, Mr. Mulat, got the idea. In Germany after World War II, he was in the Army of Occupation that went to Germany just to kind of keep the peace and rebuild Germany. And they went to these, he went to these German beer halls and he saw these big type halls and you're serving beer and you got food. And that was his idea that he brought back to Bro Bridge for the, for the Mulat Hall. Well, there, there was quite the tradition for dancing in Bro Bridge. My father-in-law, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to once again, who uh, grew up just outside of Burbridge, a little town called Parks, told a story that when he was a young man, they would take a Model T, put it up on blocks, connect the rear wheel to a generator. They would fire up lights and, a, and, a, and an amplifier for a band. 
and they would dance until the Model T ran out of gas. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think dancing goes back. He would have been, he'd be over a hundred if he were alive today. So we're talking, I guess, uh, in the, in the twenties. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it goes, it goes back. Okay. Well, I'm thinking about the song Alon Lafayette. The, the, the Falcons must have been there and heard that, heard that song. Anyway, thank you all. And, and thanks for what you've done. Thanks for Lafayette. And let's talk again. Okay. Sounds good. Thank okay, you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504-828-1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana. <laughs>